Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Rookie is a free serialized audiobook meant for mature audiences. Written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. For links to order a young adult version of this book without all the cussing, in print, ebook, or audiobook, visit scottsigler.com slash the rookie one word. This podcast contains mature situations, adult language, and lots and lots of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Howdy, junkies! I hope you have had a fantastic, fantastic week and a week and all the good stuff. I am still plugging away on the final draft of Shakedown, the Crypt Book One. I won't lie, I am digging this book. And that is pretty rare for me to say. Oftentimes, most times, I'm my own worst critic. But um, as I'm going through this one, I really like what I am seeing. I'm about a hundred pages into the final draft of this 450 page book, somewhere in that ballpark. It's not going as fast as I would like, but as a friend of mine once told me back in our drinking days, slow and steady wins the race. So I'm trying to get it done correctly for you. I really hope you're going to dig it. This book is weird. Y'all it is very weird. It is extraordinarily violent, extraordinarily violent. Basically, the trigger warning for Shakedown the Crypt Book 1 is everything that triggers anyone ever anywhere. I'm not kidding. I've actually I've done a trigger warnings list. It's 2 pages long. It's it's insane. I will keep working on this book to make you something grand. But for now, let us get back to The Rookie. Now, I listened to this chapter all the way through in order to write the story so far, and it struck me that I wrote this book some 20 years ago, probably a little bit more, more like 21, when I got done with the draft of The Rookie that you were hearing in this particular, the Rookie Adult Version podcast. To me, it's a little rambly and long, so if you feel the same way, that's all right. Just bear with it. Because this chapter is world building, literally world building on an epic scale. So let me get you caught up on the story so far. And then we're all going to get super pumped for the first Sunday of the NFL season. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Booyah. Previously on The Rookie, Quentin insisted on doing things his way, but he's learned the hard lesson that his way doesn't produce wins. He now understands that this isn't the PNFL where he could take a game over by himself. In the upper tiers, it takes a team to win. 
Can he learn to work with his teammates in time to stop the Krakens from becoming the worst team in the division? Find out next on The Rookie, episode number 16. Back on board the touchback, Quentin walked through the Sklorno section of the ship, marveling at the difference between it and the human section. While the human section was fairly spartan and decorated in subdued tones, when of course the decor wasn't cracking orange and black, the Sklorno section paraded a mind-boggling maze of electric colors. Blues, purples, reds, yellows, greens, oranges, all ranging from near black to near neon intensity. Patterns, colors, and pictures covered the floor, the walls, and the ceiling. It is intensely beautiful and disgustingly ugly all at the same time. He found it ironic that the species with no color on their bodies decorated with more colors than anyone else. He checked his message board, which displayed a map of the ship guiding him to Denver's room. Without the map, he'd have quickly become lost in the technicolor intensity. Like all doors in this section, Denver's door was oblong, tall, and narrow, like the outline of an egg stretched lengthwise. It was different, but a door was a door. It struck Quentin that this was something that the different races had in common. A need for privacy, or perhaps just the need to put up walls. Except the key, that was. He wasn't sure if the key could even understand the concept of privacy. Quentin pushed the buzzer to the right of the door. There was a brief pause before the door slid open. Denver stood there for a moment, then started to tremble. Her raspers unrolled, hitting the ground. Quentin nodded. Uh, yeah, listen. Um, I know I've been, a, I've been a little bit rude to you. Denver simply stared, stared and trembled. From inside the room, Milford walked up behind her. Milford also began to tremble. They both looked at him like he was some kind of, well, like he was some kind of an alien. And to them, he was an alien, probably as weird and disgusting as they were to him. So, uh, you guys, that was, uh, I was hoping that offer was still good. You know, to help me practice. We participate in making you even greater? Yeah, I'd really appreciate that. Denver began to bounce lightly in place, and Milford did the same. Quentin could see into the room and notice that the ceilings were at least 20 feet high. When, 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 when? Quentin shrugged. Well, I'm going to be as sore as hell tomorrow. I mean, so how about we get a few reps in right now? I know the VR field is open and we get... The two receivers sprinted out of the room, cutting his words short as they inadvertently shoved him against the far wall. They sprinted down the hall with their flat-out Sklorno speed headed for the ship's center section and the VR field. Damn, they're like little kids on the morning of giving day. Quentin smiled and followed them down the hall. With all the room's lights turned off, the only illumination came from the row of holotanks. The moving, flashing images cast an uneven and unsteady light onto Coach Hokor's face. Some of his players were taking the loss very hard, and others didn't seem to care at all. Michnik and Khomeini were in the cafeteria, drowning their sorrows in food. The key were also about to start their meal. Hokor heard the pitiful bleat of their prey animal. He punched a button on his remote control, 
turning off that monitor before the keys started eating. Some of the players were in the infirmary, Doc tending to their wounds. In a way, Hokor wished more of his players were in the infirmary, as dozens of injuries might be a way to console himself at the humiliating loss. The Krakens were one and two. Their chances of qualifying for the Tier 2 tournament almost completely destroyed. The Glory Warpigs and the Wittok Pioneers both sat at 3-0. The way Condor Adrienne was playing, he didn't see the Pioneers losing more than two games at most. The Krakens had to win their next six to even have a chance at the playoffs. Their next game was against the 0-3 Sky Demolition, and it was the only chance to get back into the race, at least mathematically speaking. A loss? Well, another loss meant the end of the playoff hopes and the end of Hokor's tenure with Ionath. This would be his last season as the Krakens coach. He knew that. Greedock wouldn't stand for it. If only Pine hadn't gone down. But that was why he went after Quentin. But the talented young Nationalite needed more time. Time that Hokor just didn't have. Computer, where's Quentin Barnes? Quentin Barnes is utilizing the Kriegsbalak virtual practice system. Nothing new there. Hokor punched a button to call up a holo of the VR practice room. Barnes was there, as he always was. The human had taken quite a beating thanks to an offensive line that simply did not want to block for him. Yet he had kept getting up and kept playing as hard as he could. And now, only hours after the game, he was practicing yet again. Barnes dropped back, stepped up, and threw a hard crossing pattern. Hokor expected to see the ball go through the outstretched holographic arms and go bouncing down the field, but it hit the arms and stuck. Hokor leaned forward. The VR players in the room faded away, leaving not only Quentin, but Denver and Milford as well. Hokor could scarcely believe his eyes. The two Sklorno receivers ran back to Quentin and lined up for another play. Game 4. Ionath Krakens 1-2 and two at Sky Demolition 0-3. Quit the radiated conference standings. Glory Warpigs, Wittok Pioneers tied for first at 3-0. Sheb Stalkers, Orbiting Death, tied for third at 2-1. Big Diggers, Grontak Hydras, Ionath Krakens, Quith Survivors, Wu Wall Crawlers, all at 1-2. And, and at the bottom, the Sky Demolition at 0-3. For more stats and league information, visit www.galacticfootballleague.com. With the touchback hovering in orbit, the shuttle flew Quentin and the other rookies down to Ionath City. This time, however, when he got out, there were quith workers and quith leaders dressed in white uniforms. A red line glowed on the roof of the Kraken's building. A blue-furred quith leader called out orders. Players, line up on the red line! Quentin lightly elbowed Yasud. What's this all about? It is a customs check. Quith Navy. Don't worry about it. League rules apply in the Concordia just like they do everywhere else in the galaxy. These custom guys can't touch you, so whatever you're carrying, they can't do a thing. Quentin looked down the line and saw Shy at the thick with his bulging backpack. He then looked at other players and saw that several of them carried a bag of some sort. Yasud held a small satchel. Quentin just didn't want to know what was inside. The blue-furred quith leader walked down the line, looking at each one of them in turn. Two white uniform workers slid a grav cart into the shuttle 
I am Kotop the Observer. My team will be checking you each time you come back from out system. I'm sure nobody here is smuggling anything, right? <laughs> no one but us chickens. Yasud laughed, his curly beard jiggling in time. Yes, it is all so very funny. Kotop said nothing else, just stared, his one eye a deep shade of black. The workers came out of the shuttle. No explosives, no weapons. Kotop stared at the Krakens for a second, disgust visible in his expression. You may all go. Get out of my sight. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. We are in trouble. Hokor spoke quietly. Despite the fact that every Kraken's player was crammed into the central meeting area, Hokor didn't need any volume to be heard. Nobody made a sound. There had been some joking and laughing and boasting as the players filtered out of their respective locker rooms and into the central area. But all of that faded when Hokor used his holopen to decorate the far wall with three large, glowing orange marks. The marks were a number one, a dash, and the number two. One and two. We are a losing team. 
a losing team. How does that sound to you? No one answered. Tweety, how does that sound to you? Sounds like I'd rather eat a shit sandwich, coach. Right. So why did we allow the Pioneers to throw for 340 yards on us when we only sacked Adrian once? Tweety said nothing. Berea! Hokor said to the right cornerback, who immediately began to tremble. What number do you like more? One and two, or 340 yards passing? Berea said nothing. Instead, she fell on the floor and lay flat, trembling like a damaged moth. And you, Barnes, how does it feel to be on your first losing team? It's humiliating, coach. And you, Gilly Yowett. I've got some numbers for you, too. Which do you like better? One and two, or five sacks? Five sacks. Killa Yoed said nothing. Do you realize that in one game, we went from allowing the fewest sacks in the conference to allowing the second most? Do you realize that you and your brethren on the offensive line are now the second worst unit in the quith-irradiated conference? Hokor hit a button. The one and two vanished. He wrote three new symbols. Zero, dash, Three. This is the record of the Sky Demolition. They are the worst team in the conference. If they beat us, then by default, we're the worst team in the conference. If you think you feel bad now, imagine how you will feel if you lose to them. Hokor paused dramatically. A deathly silence filled the locker room. He cleared the numbers again. Three names flashed up on the screen. Brady Antonabi, San Mateo, and Yala the Biter. The holotank flashed two pictures, a tall, blonde-haired human frozen in mid-throw and a sprinting Sklorno. Both were dressed in the uniforms of the Sky Demolition. Light purple leg armor, deep purple jerseys with light purple numbers trimmed in white, and deep purple helmets with three white stripes down the center. Brady Antonabi's a second-year quarterback having a surprisingly good year, despite the demolition's record. In three games, he has seven touchdown passes and has run for two more. Four of those touchdown passes have gone to San Mateo. Antanabi has also given up five interceptions. He's thrown for 812 yards, 260 which have gone to San Mateo. We're going to stop that combination. There is no alternative. Hokor hit a button. The picture faded away replaced by a moderate-sized Quith Warrior. Yala the Biter is fast, perhaps the fastest linebacker in the conference. He is faster than John Tweedy. He is faster than Virak the Mean. He has four sacks on the season, along with two interceptions and 17 tackles. He is the demolition's biggest defensive threat. He also has six unnecessary roughness penalties, three for late hits on the quarterback, and last week was thrown out of the game for fighting. In week one, he killed Princeton, kick returner for the Big Diggers, on a clean hit. Last week, he severed the leg of a wall crawler's tight end at the knee, ending the human's career. If the offensive line plays poorly this week, as they did against the Pioneers, I suspect our quarterbacks will be sledded off the field. If he blitzes, you'll find him and put him out of his misery. Hokor cleared the pictures. The room remained quiet. The Sky Demolition is not a deep team. If we stop those three, we win. I don't care about the Tier 2 tournament anymore. All I care about is the Sky Demolition. This game is all that matters to us. Let's practice like we want to win back our honor. Quentin felt the change in the locker room. There was no yelling, no pushing, no testosterone-oriented boasting, but the air had changed nonetheless. 
Holcor's quiet speech had affected them all, himself included. Quentin had four days to change the team, four days to get them playing as a unit. But was that enough time? The touchback was in punch drive, en route to Orbital Station 2, home of the Sky Demolition. Quentin shut down the holotank in his room. He'd looked at the demolition defensive players over and over again. Now it was time to put that study into practical use. He headed for the VR practice field. Last night's practice had gone well. The repetitive throws to the receivers had started to give him a better perspective on the speed involved. Practicing with holograms was effective, but a hologram couldn't catch the ball and therefore couldn't give him a truly realistic idea of where to put a ball so that a talented receiver could haul it in. Quentin walked into the VR field, expecting to see Denver and Milford. It shocked him to see not only the two rookies, but Haywick and Scarborough as well. The starting receivers were there to practice. In addition, two reserve defensive backs, Sagatuk and Riabuth, stood ready to play. Denver gave the quith equivalent of a submissive bow, then spoke. If Quentin Barnes approves, these humble players would like to partake in the receiving of your gifts. Quentin felt slightly embarrassed to see Haywick and Scarborough, two starting receivers. Yet as soon as that feeling crossed his brain, he chased it away. He was the starting quarterback and should have asked those two to practice with him from the beginning. The fact that they had come on their own, well, that was both emotionally flattering and strategically encouraging. Now he'd have an even more realistic version of a real game situation. I approve, and, and thank you. All the Sklorno bowed as one. Quentin smiled as he walked to the rack of footballs, realizing that these teammates, at least, had accepted him as an equal. For Quentin, the days blurred past. A run-on sentence crammed with practice and study, with little of the punctuation that sleep would provide. He woke four hours before his first meal, studied Sky Demolition defensive players, formations and plays, then went to eat with the team. He then sat in position meetings with Pine, Itzak, and Hokor. Then team practice. Doc had said Pine could dress for the game, but he was not to practice, which meant that Quentin took 85% of all reps. After practice came second meal, which Quentin now took with the rest of the team. He tried talking to as many teammates as he could. He got the impression his teammates knew that he was trying, and it seemed to be making a difference. After second meal, he studied some more. When most of the team went to sleep, Quentin set up shop in the VR field. By the third day, every Sklorno on the team was showing up for the late-night sessions. Quentin practiced with three or four receivers, depending on the set, and a full complement of defensive backs. The extra reps to the receivers proved invaluable, and his timing started to improve. But it was the defenders that really got him over the hump. He could run whatever play he wanted, as many times as he wanted, gradually building up an instinctive knowledge of how fast the defenders could break on the ball and how far away they had to be to constitute an open receiver and he made sure they threw plenty of safety and corner blitzes. It would be a long time before the Scalorno-level speed became second nature to him, the way human-level speed had been back on McCovey. But as he ran rep after rep through pass after pass, 
he regained the belief that he could handle the offense and throw with total confidence. Quentin had assumed that no construct could be larger than Emperor One. He was wrong. It's a city. It's a goddamn city that's the size of a planet. Orbital Station 2, or the Deuce, as it was known across most of the human worlds, reminded Quentin of an animal he'd seen in his science classes, the sea urchin. The Deuce was spherical, like a moon or a planet, with hundreds of massive, orderly hollow spines jutting up and away from the surface. He looked around the touchback's viewing bay. All of the rookies were there, of course, as they were to see any new planet. All of the Quith warriors were present, as was Hokor and at least two dozen Quith workers. Quentin hadn't even known that many Quith workers were on the ship. All of them, warriors, leaders, and workers alike, stared at the viewscreen with a suffused reverence. He looked for someone to talk to. Every minute of every day, he tried to find any opportunity to communicate with his teammates, to forge the bonds that Pine said were so critical to winning. He realized he'd spent absolutely no time with the Quith warriors. He walked across the viewing deck to stand next to Virak the Mean. Virak, just, just how big are those things? Quentin gestured to the urchin spikes that jutted from the space station. Virak turned and looked at him. A Quith leader's eye is a huge, glassy sphere that looks about as resilient as a giving day tree ornament. A Quith warrior's eye, on the other hand, looks out from beneath thick, bony ridges. Even though a warrior is more than twice the size of a leader, a warrior's eye is about two-thirds the size of a leader's. A heavy eyelid, thick as mason leather and coated with overlapping scales of tough chitin, hooded Virak's eye from the top. Quentin's childhood combat training taught him that the eye was the best place to attack a quith warrior. But combat sims with realistic robots were a long way from facing one in being-to-being combat. Now that he'd seen quith warriors move in person and on the field, the idea of poking out a quith warrior's softball-sized eye seemed much easier said than done. Virak looked at him with a combination of amusement and disdain. Of all the races, the quith seemed to share the most human-like emotions. When Virak spoke, it was with a noted air of boredom. The spikes are about two miles long. Two miles? That's amazing. They look so thick to be that tall. The spikes are about an eighth of a mile thick at the base. Man, they're kind of ugly. Negative. You are not seeing what I'm seeing. They are beautiful. Quentin stared at them and nodded. The symmetrical placement of the spikes did give the space station an ironically delicate appearance. The spikes are a life form, a silica-based organism that grows in a dense crystalline matrix. They're like bacteria. They grow, feed, and reproduce in numbers beyond comprehension. Only the outside of the spike is alive. The inside is nothing but dead skeletons. But it's incredibly dense and hard. The crystalline structure gives it the strength to reach such massive heights. What are they for? They serve two purposes. They reach down to the core. We can vent energy through them to propel the station in any direction. They're also the main supports of the Deuce's framework. Crossbeams connect to the spikes. You can see one below the equator right there. Virak pointed. Quinn saw another long green structure, although this one was horizontal rather than vertical. It ran between two of the spikes. Why is there only one crossbeam? There's thousands of them, but they're buried. 
The deuce is built in stages, and each stage takes several cycles. With that crossbeam in place, workers will add to the station's mass. As Quentin watched, a small speckle-coated asteroid drifted down below the spike points and towards the surface. It took his brain a second to register the scale involved. The speckles were actually ships, and the asteroid had to be at least 10 miles across and 5 miles thick. As he watched, the speckle ships, each of which were probably larger than the touchback, drove the asteroid down. About half a mile from the surface, the speckle ships broke off, flying away from the asteroid like a slow-moving cloud of gnats. The massive rock continued its descent, until it smashed into the surface with a huge, billowing cloud of dust and debris. The cloud seemed to hang in the air, floating lightly, pulled back down ever so slowly by the deuce's weak gravity. That is how it gets bigger. Every day ships go out and find asteroids. They bring them back to add to the surface. As the mass continues to grow, so does the gravity, and so does the density of the deuce's core. Additional matter on the surface compresses the core. The original living levels have long since been smashed flat by gravity. Workers constantly dig new levels. With each new level, the total surface area is expanded, creating an exponentially increasing living area to accommodate a high birth rate. Immigration to the orbital stations fell to near standstills after Wittok and Ionath were colonized. Now those seeking to escape the overpopulation of Quith head to those planets instead of the orbital stations. Quentin stared at the asteroid, a small pebble in a slightly larger crater. Crater and asteroid both, barely a pimple on the surface. How long does it take to bring those asteroids in? Virak thought for a moment. It depends on the materials needed. Some trips take only a few months. Others seek out asteroids comprised of rare or vital minerals, such as platinum or iridium. Those missions can take hundreds of years. It is common for a crew to leave the deuce, knowing that they will be long dead of old age before the ship returns, and their children or grandchildren will pilot the vessel home. How many ships are there? Somewhere around a hundred thousand. A hundred? Just how long does it take to build that thing out there? The orbital stations were built as an effort to ease overcrowding on Quith. The deuce has been growing for almost 300 years, and the ace is just over 350 years old. Quentin shook his head in amazement. All his life, he'd been told the quith were only semi-intelligent beasts. Yet here was an engineering project that rivaled the terraforming of Solomon, and a race so unified in purpose that they sacrificed themselves to build a home for future generations. Well, it's really not that big. I mean, for an artificial construct, it's massive, right, sure. But from a strategic perspective, I can't see how the Kretorakians could take over entire planets that were 20 times as large, but not be able to take the deuce. They took over other planets by swarming across the surface and overwhelming the enemy by sheer numbers. Here, the surface doesn't support life. They had to fight their way into the shaft to get at the living levels. They tried the same technique they used against the big ships, launching thousands of landing vessels, trying to overwhelm our shaft defenses. We slaughtered their people by the millions. Quentin raised an eyebrow. You sound like you actually fought here or something. I did. I was born here. When my time came, I fought not for new breeding grounds, but for the defense of my birth home. Virak absently brushed a pedipal hand across a long list of short, alien words etched into the chitin of his right arm. What are those? Quentin asked, gesturing to the writing. Names of warriors in my fighting pack. Warriors I had lived with most of my life. 
They died in the battles. I lost everyone in my fighting pack, but the Kretorakians paid a terrible price for their assault. How many died? Over two million quith, including all my family. We estimate around 22 million Kretorakians died trying to capture the deuce. We kept rough count up to 10 million, but they just kept coming, and counting the dead was last in our list of needs. Quinn tried to imagine fighting an enemy without number that came in wave after wave after wave. That many? And they never broke through? They eventually created a beachhead on Shaft 2 and Shaft 4. We let them bring in troops and resources. Then we used nuclear weapons to destroy those shafts before they could penetrate further. Eventually, technologists from Baker 6 were brought in to engineer a way through the two miles that separated the surface from the living levels. So did they get in? Yeah, they got in several times. But we distributed tactical nuclear weapons throughout the deuce. Citizens were under strict orders. At the first sign of a breakthrough, seal off their section and detonate. Quentin's jaw dropped. At first sign? But how long did it take to evacuate the sections before you nuked them? Virak looked back into space. There was no evacuation. Citizens sealed their sections, then detonated. Fucking A. How many quith would that kill? Virak thought for a moment. Depending on the section, anywhere from 150,000 to 250,000. It did not matter. As long as the Kretorakins did not establish a beachhead in the living levels, from which they could resupply and swarm through the entire station, any sacrifice was worth it. Yeah, but to kill a quarter million of your own people... It was necessary. The Kretorakins do not control us, Quentin. Freedom isn't free. Quentin tried to imagine even the most hardcore holy man pulling the trigger on a nuke that would take out not only him, but 250,000 nationalites. We maintain maneuverability. As big as it is, the whole station can enter punch space. We move towards the home planet to help defend it. The three orbital stations are more than just ships. They're self-contained ecosystems with planetary-level manufacturing infrastructures and resources that are inexhaustible in the short term. That meant we were moving three full war factories to defend the home world. We left the Kretorakians with one choice completely destroy the orbital stations, exterminating all life, or fight the ships the stations produced for decades to come. So why didn't they just blow up the deuce and the others? We don't know. Maybe they didn't have the technology. Relativity bombs, like the Sklorno used on Wittok, would have completely destroyed the deuce, but the Kratorakians either do not have them or don't use them. Doesn't matter anyways. We beat them back once, we'll beat them back again. The Quith protect their homelands. There was more than a hint of condescension in that comment. The Quith, who despite their military presence were considered the galaxy's poor cousin of intelligence, had resisted the swarming Kretorakians when all the superior governments had surrendered. The fact that most of the Quith planets were irradiated wastelands seemed irrelevant, at least to them. The conversation faded away as the touchback maneuvered around the deuce, towards a massive shaft that was perhaps two miles wide. Rows of lights ran down the sides, disappearing into the depths, reminiscent of the mine shafts back home. Ships, large and small, flew in and out of the huge opening. As the touchback approached, traffic faded to nothing. Exit traffic ceased, and entry traffic hovered in place. Why is all the shipping stopped? Because they clear everything out when a bus comes in. They need to prevent possible terrorist attacks. If a ship even gets within half a mile of a team bus, it's destroyed. 
The touchback descended the shaft, sinking like a pebble into a miles-deep, dark-water chasm. Large ships docked against greenish projections that jutted out from the walls up and down the length of the shaft. He saw thousands of small ships, but many larger ones as well. Cargo tugs hauling long lines of hexagonal boxes, space liners sporting sleek designs, bulky freighters loading or unloading payload to haul to other systems, and something that Quentin had never seen in his life. Warships. There were dozens of warships, big and small, bristling with bulky shield generators and the long, thin, unmistakable shapes of weapons. Quentin felt a shiver, thinking of the days when weapon-loaded ships like these had permeated the universe, fighting and killing more often than not. The touchback slowed, almost imperceptibly, and a light jarring motion indicated they had docked. Beings on the first shuttle move to the landing bay. First shuttle flight leaves in 15 minutes. You come with me. But I'm a rookie. I'm on the third flight. I have more to show you. You come with me. Gwenton followed the muscular quith warrior from the viewing deck down to the landing bay. He boarded. A few of the veteran starters gave him a quick look, but most shrugged, or gave the respective alien equivalent of a shrug, and went back to whatever they had been doing. The shuttle slid out of the landing bay and descended the shaft. The shuttle finally slipped past the bottom of the shaft and into a cavernous, dome-shaped space. Endless rails of the green crystal ran in curved arms along the dome shelf towards the two-mile-wide shaft mouth, which was also ringed by a thick band of green. Ships, probably personal cars judging from their speck-like dimensions, flew in every direction like a thick swarm of gnats. The air looked crowded with vehicles, but not around the shuttle. Off the port side, he noticed a squat yellow-and-black ship, lethal-looking and bristling with weapons. It struck him as an artistic interpretation of a bumblebee crossed with an automated factory robot. He didn't know the reason for their rather unaerodynamic shape, but there was no mistaking the ship was a fighter. He watched the fighter out the window, matching speed and altitude with the shuttle. Then he noticed another fighter, and another, also matching speed. He looked out windows on the other side of the shuttle and saw many more fighters. Dozens of mechanical bees formed a sort of protective sphere web with the shuttle at its center. The deuce reminded Quentin of Ionath City in Port Wittock, a huge, dome-shaped city, although this time the dome was twice as large, at least four miles in diameter and over two miles high. There was no sprawling city playing away from the downtown. Here, bare rock marked the city's edge. A winding river, at this height no more than a blue-green ribbon, ran through the center of the city, emanating from one dome wall and disappearing into another on the far side. This place did not have the fine radial symmetry of Inath City. Rather, it spread outward from the center, the way a bacteria colony might grow in a petri dish. Orderly, but in a biological fashion, as if it had grown naturally without the guiding hand of a city engineer. Lights glowed from almost every building, adding to the city's biological feel, as if it were a bioluminescent colonial organism in some deep ocean. Roads wound through the city with little more order than the meandering river. How did they put a river in there? Comet harvesters. Same as the asteroid harvesters. Water is very important for life. Females breed in water. On Ionath and Wittok, we have special water-filled facilities for breeding. But here, we can do it naturally, right out in the open, like it's done on Quith. The buildings had looked squat from the shaft mouth, but as the shuttle descended, 
Quentin saw that that was just an illusion. The towering, organic-looking hexagonal structures reached to heights of 200 stories and more. The shuttle banked to the left and followed the line of the river. Buildings seemed to link together, their green crystalline structure branching out like neurons to connect to all their neighbors several times and at several heights. The number of buildings, their densely packed proximity, their height, Quentin's head spun with one obvious question. How many beings live in the deuce? The last census put us somewhere around 742 million. It's not as open as Ionath City, but it's not nearly as crowded as the homeworld. All in a space less than half the size of Earth's moon. The Quith homeworld was only slightly larger than Earth, and populated with 72 billion Quith. The race seemed to have mastered dense population living. The shuttle dropped to only 100 feet above the water as the river banked sharply to the right. Around that bend lay Demolition Stadium. A smaller affair than its counterparts on Ionath and Wittok, it had purple seats 500 rows high running parallel to each sideline. Demolition Stadium looked kind of like a freeze-frame sculpture of a thick book being closed. Both end zones were open, free of the towering bleachers which rose up at such a steep angle. Quentin wondered how anyone could climb those steps. The field surface was a pale, milky white, with yard markers and lines written in a deep blue. The surface is made of tyrolic, very springy and giving. Soft surface cuts down on injuries, but stains jerseys badly. A multi-shaded purple building dominated one end zone, while a platform of some kind dominated the other. The shuttle set down on the purple building. Virak turned to Quentin and grabbed one arm with a pedipalp. Quentin managed not to wince at the painful grab. He knew the full strength of a quith warrior, and this grab was not meant to hurt. You watch yourself. Orbital stations are a lot older than Ionath City. Races have mingled here for centuries. This is one of the few places in the galaxy where there's no Craterokians, so a lot of criminal elements come and go, or just come and stay. All right, so why don't your people just do something about it? For a long time, it was difficult to trade with other systems. No one wanted to bother with the quith. Smugglers brought in many goods, and they needed a place to hide out. And when the war came, they fought and died right along with us. For that, we leave them be as long as they don't make too much trouble. Quentin noted the phrase, too much trouble, as opposed to, as long as they don't make any trouble. As he disembarked onto the roof of the purple building, he wondered what kind of activities might fall under the threshold of too much trouble. Virak walked away as the races moved to their separate locker rooms, then stopped and said one last thing. Just be careful, and you do best to keep to yourself. You have been listening to The Rookie, book one of the Galactic Football League series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on the author and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon, superweaponband.com.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.